Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings, I'm Trisha Kaffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture with a special mini-series in Landscape Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And I have a special guest for you here today on the show. Uh, the book is Active Landscape Photography by Anne Godfrey, published by Routledge in 2020. She is an award-winning professor of landscape architecture in both teaching and research at SUNY, the College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Hi, Anne. Welcome to the show. Hi. It's great to be with you today. Thank you so much. Well, let's start with my favorite question. So what was your motivation for writing this book? Well, you know, I've had a love of photography for a very long time, and it's been the way that I first started really looking at and examining the landscape. And as time went on and my uh, work in photography continued to grow, I kept witnessing my colleagues um, make all kinds of photographs for site investigation. But then when they would come back to the studio, they would find that very few of them were actually useful. Um, So in looking at with my own eyes and my own background in photography, I started to think about, huh. What can we do about this? So I created this first question, which was, how can landscape architects better understand how to use photography? And then over time, as my research really delved into this topic, the question became broader. What is the relationship between photography and how we understand value and design for landscape places? And that question has really been at the core of my research and the foundation of my research, looking at this interesting and ubiquitous relationship between photography and landscape architecture. Um, You know, and we'll, as we go through talking about different parts of the book, I'm going to touch on some themes here. Um, But this also grew out of the fact that photography really is the most prevalent and I argue the most important tool for representation that we use within landscape architecture. I mean, everybody can make a photograph uh, whenever you want to. We always have a camera with us in our phones. Yet, in looking at the literature and landscape architecture, there hasn't been an extended critical discourse in our field about how photography is used. There's been uh, particular works that look at it in specific ways, but not a broader discussion that applies to all the different ways that we use photography and landscape architecture. So this book is really the first step, I believe, in launching a critical dialogue about how photography works and how photography influences our design decision-making process. One of the major goals in the book is helping everyone become more active and conscious photographers. 
Oh, yes. Well, let me ask you, so what is your um, your educational background in photography? How did you come about it? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, like so many people, I grew up wanting to be a photographer for National Geographic. Um, and that was, of course, very much embedded in my desire to be an adventurer. Um, and I, I, though I'm not a photographer for National Geographic, I am an adventurer and like to travel all over the United States. Um, that love of adventure combined with some different opportunities to start taking coursework in photography that started uh, at the, um, the Berkeley Extension, which closed very recently, that used to be in the Castro um, in San Francisco, and then continued. I did uh, a bunch of work in photography along with my Master's of Landscape Architecture degree at the University of Oregon. So my um, relationship with um, becoming a landscape architecture professor and my work in photography have always been hand in hand. So where do we begin? Do you start, uh, we'll start with chapter section one, always photographs a place for the beginning for landscape architecture. Where, where do you start taking photographs to make your design decisions? Ah, so you know, photography is one of the first things that we do as a way to investigate sites. Um, And so that can happen in um, like a formalized way. So we are able to visit a site and are allowed to spend time on it to photograph it and assess it. And that's one way that photography is made for landscape architecture, but other ways are we often uh, more casually make notes with photographs of uh, different details we're interested in, precedents we like, places that we travel. Um, And so those kinds of photographs also ride along with those more dedicated uh, periods of time in which we make uh, photographs on site or within the context of the sites that we work in. Um, And those photographs are really some of the primary forms of information that we, um, some of the primary forms of information that we look at and assess and start to make decisions about uh, right at the beginning of any project. So that is um, kind of the first first step uh, with it. But I think also what I talk about in the idea that photography is, you know, a ubiquitous tool that we use uh, for landscape architecture is that we also select and find photographs made by other people about the places that we're interested in and the places we're designing for. And what's interesting in that relationship is that those photographs aren't necessarily made for design decision making. So we take them out of one context and place them into the context of um, doing design work. Uh, And that is a very unique uh, instance of the use of photography that is extremely specific to landscape architecture. And that's something that I talk about in uh, that chapter. So um, what's important to think about with this ubiquitous relationship is that um, photography is an act of selection, either when we make a photograph or when we choose it from some other source. And that act of selection is an expression of the the photographers or the the researchers' biases, experiences, and beliefs. Um, 
and that photography as an action of making or choosing is, is never an objective process. It's always highly subjective. Um, and it's important to understand that because we rely so much on photography to help us make design decisions and understand landscape places. Well, yeah, I was, <clears throat> I was about to ask one question in particular. Yeah, I was um, a professional portrait and wedding photographer for 20 years, and I find it, um, I, I'm a master screen landscape architecture, but I would go out to a site and I'd be like, okay, well, and I just find myself treating it more like an art project. Okay, how can I make this look good? Instead of just, mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, yeah, like, uh, well, what do you decide to leave in and, and out? And, you know, is photography reality, you know? Right, right. And and that gets, that uh, idea or that question that you're asking is another theme that runs throughout the book. Uh, photography is always an act of creation. Uh, in the instance you're talking about, you know, you're very consciously aware of it, like, oh, that would make a really beautiful photograph. Um, and so photography is always this choice of creating something, a vision, uh, creating a sense of understanding or relationships. Um, and so the photographer uh, always is making choices about that. Um, the book, uh, reveals and talks pretty explicitly about different instances that are typical in the process of our design work. Um, and in those specific instances, I really call to um, attention the fact that, you know, let's pay attention to what you're thinking about at the time that you're making a photograph for a particular purpose, right? Like, why am I making this photograph right now? What is that really about? Um, so it's something to think about with the book as a whole is that photographs, we need to remember that photographs, uh, don't present what we see with our eyes. Um, and photographs aren't a stand in for landscape experience. Uh, photographs are a framed composed representation of a landscape place. That's an expression of the photographer's own specific interests. Um, and that is, uh, the condition of photography. And once we, I think, take hold of that, then photography starts to become a much more interesting process. Um, instead of photography being, instead of us treating photography like a photocopy machine for the world, which I think we sometimes default to instead, it's like, wow, I really have a lot of, um, choices and how I'm going to portray this place to my colleagues back in the office, to other people I'm doing research with, to my fellow students in the design studio. Um, and so the discussions throughout the book really highlight that as, as one thing to start really paying attention to. Well, I think it's true. And, and I know you addressed in your book this too. Uh, that was a very interesting point. And um when I've taught a few photography workshops, I make people go slow. And um, an office I was at, it's like they try to take pictures of everything. And it's like, well, you know, was that really necessary? Or they just take too many. Um, how, do right. you, how do you teach people to slow down? Right. Yeah. So um, there's a chapter later on in the first section of the book after I outlined some of the major issues uh, around the critical discourse of photography, both in photography and in cultural theory, I get into in chapter seven, talking about different 
methods for how to, like what you're talking about, slow down. Um, I teach courses that are specifically about teaching photography, critical ways of making photography um, to students in landscape architecture. And also, luckily, at, at the ESF, at the College of Environmental Science and Forestry, I get to teach students across uh, the environmental sciences, which is really exciting. And I walk them through, as well as in the book, different really basic, um, simple methods. What's interesting, and I'll talk about a couple here in a moment, is that these methods are meant to basically just have you be more mindful of what you're doing while you're photographing. Um, you know, as a photographer, like that you get into a mindset as you photograph. Um, and those of us who make photography on a regular basis, um, we, we know what that mindset feels like. But I think that sometimes if we're just hurrying, trying to document a site really quickly, that we can lose track of, of having that awareness. So um, a couple examples from the book are, one is slowing down. And a, what I ask students to do and what I present in the book is count five seconds out before you actually release the shutter. And in those five seconds, really look at the whole plane of the frame. And in those five seconds, which is actually a long amount of time if you count it out, uh, ask yourself, why am I making this photograph? And then answer that for yourself. And, you know, we can do that in five seconds. That's one step to just go, oh, attaching your reasoning to the photographic process, maybe asking, maybe realizing, oh, is this photograph really saying what I want it to say or they're showing what I'm interested in here? Um, so that's, that's one example of, of slowing down, is just taking that moment. Because we all know you can take 500 photographs in 500 seconds, right? Uh, and we're, we're trying, but the, having the, that many photographs isn't useful for our design process. Um, another thing that I ask people to do is to limit the number of photographs that they actually make. Um, in a classroom setting, that's easy, an easy prompt to do, and it's attached to all of the assignments that occur in my photography classes. Um, and so the numbers I use are uh, derived from rolls of film, so 24 or 36 exposures. Um, but in larger sites, we can think about maybe 50 photographs or 100 photographs at most. Um, if you have a longer amount of time. Um, and that gets into the old photography prompt of make every single photograph count, right? So if you've only got 24 or 36 frames in a roll of film and, uh, you know, the roll of film is costing you 6 to $8 and then you have to pay to have it processed. Like if you can just go through that mental process, then it starts to help you be more conscious of well is this photograph really is this the one is this, mm, no maybe I need to this is a better this is a better photograph this photograph is showing more of what I think is important to understand about this landscape so that's another another uh, method really simple method 
No, I, was, I was about to, yeah, definitely agree because uh, when I did portrait sessions, I would shoot on average two and a half rolls of film. Mm-hmm. And on my film roll was 20 shots and uh, I got everything I needed for the, for the session. And then I had to pull myself back a little with digital. Cause I was like, I just started clicking too much. I'm like, yeah, this is way too much. And this is way too much time editing. This is, uh, you, you get like a kid in a candy shop a little bit. You got to kind of stop. Yeah. Yes. Right. And it's easy. And then, you come back to the office and you've got 500 photographs. <laughs> and um, what happens is, and what I've watched with my students and I've watched with myself, because it's, you know, we all make a lot of photographs. Um, is then when you look through them, it's harder to actually digest or assess what you have. Um, that there can be kind of fatigue in having that many images um, and then because the, your thought process isn't as attached in the process of making photographs on site, you may have less uh, understanding of why did I make that photograph or why did I make those 10 photographs in a row. Um, so the other thought is that if we have less photographs to look at, we can take longer to then reinvestigate them in the office. And that that actually fewer photographs may help us see and understand more than when we make the 500 photographs really quickly. Yeah, you do. Your eyes just get fatigued after a while. I'm just going, eh, delete, 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 delete. And then it's like, yeah, it really yeah. wasn't necessary after all. Mm-hmm, exactly. And we've all like flicked through, you know, the photographs on your screen and, if you're under a deadline or, you, you know, you just don't have as much time as you'd like, it just becomes this wash of imagery um, that may not be nearly as useful. Yeah. So when you take your students out to a site and you're, you're thinking about, or if you're going out to a site to document, how, how do you do it? How do you, do you set up a system for making sure that you get what you need and it at least portrays the site as realistically as possible, even though we all know you can crop it how you want it. What is your approach? Yeah. So um, that's a, that's a, that's a tricky question because um, one thing that I advocate for is having a predetermined um, set of goals for photographing when you visit a site that could be, of course, with my students in an academic setting, but also this book is very much for practitioners um, to pick up and utilize different methods and thoughts from it. So as a practitioner, one could go in and um, have a set of ideas around it. So one example is uh, Scape was one of the contributors of case studies to the book. So there's a set of case studies in the middle section of the book of different uh, landscape architecture practices, utilizing photography in rigorous and interesting ways. Um, and one example is Scape has a, a office method of using photography to document the vernacular instances, unique instances and occurrences and, and characteristics on sites. Um, and the way that they choose to do this is that these are more tightly framed photographs that they're consciously interested in texture, um, traces of past uses, and colors on sites. So that's an example 
um, from them. And I think an example that displays the, how do I create a set of predetermined goals and objectives before I go out onto the site? So the, so, so that's one example. Another example would be that this site has um, a particular historic context that is very important for the end goals articulated by the client for the design. So in this photographic session, I'm going to focus on seeing what evidence of that past history may still be present on the site. And I can say that's what this set of photographs is about. Um, now, at first blush, that might feel kind of constrained, right? Like, well, if I, what do I, what do, I do? I'm there. I have to photograph everything. Um, so this gets into to some thoughts about allowing some time before going to a site to um, get your head around what's happening there, what you might encounter, and also, as design practice, you know, what are some of the goals that we are initially engaging in for the design of the site? And how does that inform or direct the photography for the site? Um, you use a, a, a term realistic, and that's another one of these terms that gets really slippery when we talk about photography. You know, does photography present the real? Um, and I think that it's a way to think about this instead is that photography is a representation that presents a visual um, a visual representation that looks like what we see, but through composition, angle, point of view, the way the photographer photographs that place augments that reality in some way, shape, or form. Um, and so the, the no, it's hard to say what's real. Um, and in, in the, right now in contemporary art discussions, the notion of reality is very much a subject for discussion and debate and what does that mean. Um, so I, I like to uh, open up the conversation about just going, well, what does that mean? reality, what's real, what do I see, what's there. Um, and, and again, going back to the fact that photographs are uh, representations that expect, express the photographer just as much as they're expressing or detailing specific um, circumstances on a landscape site. Well, yeah, and I was just thinking, I was sitting here looking at a book and it's got a, a picture on a cover and I could tell that it was probably shot about noon or one o'clock. And so, yeah, uh, you know, rally's a bit fluid. You know, do you go out at different different times of the day? Uh, you know, it it always looks different as uh, seasons and time of day, and of course, weather and clouds. There's so many variables in lighting. It's fluid, right? It is, and how uh, a place feels or how you experience it at one time of the day can be really different in a, than another time of the day. Um, you may not have control of when you get to be on a site, especially if it's private property and it's a constrained access or that type of thing. And so in many cases, you have to acknowledge that that's, that is a factor that's um, influencing how the subject matter or the characteristics of the site end up being portrayed. 
uh, in the photographs. So that gets into an active looking. So like what you're saying, well, I can tell that that photograph was made in the middle of the day. The light's pretty flat. There's, there's not very many shadows. Um, and the way you describe it, I think, is a great way to go forward. Like, let's describe what we see and what we think the circumstances were when that photograph was made. Instead of saying something like, oh, man, that, that's so flat, the light's so flat, and everything's so washed out, and uh, we can't use that photograph because it just doesn't look good, right? So that gets into when we're looking at photographs and assessing their value for our work, um, that we need to use our good designer skills to understand why it looks the way it looks instead of making, let's say, a knee-jerk reaction to, oh, you know, that just doesn't look good and we can't use it because the photograph doesn't look good. Um, I, I think we can be more critical in the way we assess those things. Yeah, and I see so many. And I guess probably, and I'm sure with your critical eye too, you look at photographs and you go, yeah, that's that's so over photoshopped. And to me, once it gets too over photoshopped and tweaked, it it it's just more digital art than photography. How do you address mm-hmm. like that? Yeah, so you know, we we do augment our photographs for specific uses. And I think that instead of saying, you know, this is good or this is bad one circumstance is okay and one circumstance is not okay. Instead, to say, well, this photograph has obviously been color corrected in a way that's really favoring, you know, showing off this particular part of the site. Um, Or, wow, you know, that sunset's like blazing magenta. Woo, you know, and and like I, and you could say, I love that. That makes me feel really good about being there. Uh, but let's, let's take it further. So it's like, okay, well, that was probably Photoshopped and, you know, the sunset isn't always like that. And I, I don't know if I'll get to be there to experience the site then, but, but that's a, an interesting way to think about the place or, you know, wow, that feature because of the way this has been augmented in Photoshop must be really important to the designer or the client. And so, again, we put our designer hat on and look really closely at why is this photograph looking this way? Um, And what is the underlying intentions of presenting the landscape this way through the photograph, right? So, you know, that gets into I maybe I would choose to photograph a place at a time of day when there's lots of people out having lunch, um, and that maybe the lighting conditions aren't ideal, uh, but I want to go out there at that time of day because I want to show the use of the place because that's really important to me as a value of the design. And I might go back into the office and do a little correction with the contrast um, just to you know give the photograph a little more contrast instead of it being kind of washed out in the middle of the day. So I guess I would have to ask myself, how far am I going to do that? And, you know, again, at what point am I fine with what I'm trying to show? Yeah, is it just like taking out a little leaf or something like that in Photoshop, or is it like doing a major overhaul? (laughs) Yeah, and I think it is really about, like, let's be honest with ourselves. 
Let's be honest with ourselves about how we use photography, how we change it. And let's be honest with ourselves about why we're doing it. And we do it for lots of different reasons. Um, the Another point of the book is to to say, let's think about that there's a lot of different ways that we can make photographs. There's lots of different ways that photographs can look or appear, be made. Um, and maybe we could use more different types of photography as a way to talk about our designs. Um, there's a, a fairly narrow aesthetic around built work photography right now that is extremely pleasing, beautiful, and satisfying. Yet that's just one way of photographing places. Um, and I think that, and I, and I propose and kind of urge us to explore more places, or excuse me, more ways and types of photography to um, express our design work. Uh, that, that discussion gets, uh, I go into more depth in that discussion in the second half of the book, um, bringing in examples from particular practitioners and other artists um, that demonstrate different ways of making work with photography. Yes, and I'm going to give, you have a case, we'll talk about some case studies in your book, and one of them I'm going to point out is um, Nelson Metzenbode-Woltz. Yeah. Um, I have been on his website, and I was like, yeah, that's that's somebody who knows how to be a photographer. Uh, they have excellent uh, photographs on uh, all their materials. Uh, so why did you include them in the book, and, and what did you include? Oh, yes, yeah. so... Um, what's interesting about the case studies as well is that <clears throat> there are examples from several different landscape architecture firms across the United States and in Canada, and each one demonstrates a different kind of practice with photography. Um, so th- the images are presented, but also there's, there's long-form captions discussing the process and some of the goals of the, the, the photographs. Um, so for Nelson Bird Woltz, there's three different projects. One is the Carolyn Crondelin Park um, in Asheville, North Carolina. The second project is the Arango Station in New Zealand, which um, they're fairly well known for. And then Duke Pond, which has also been very recently gotten a lot of um, press, which is a great project. And each of those uh, projects demonstrates a different kind of way of utilizing photography and landscape architecture. Uh, the Karen Crangdelen Park um, shows how photographs are used as a way to um, better attach visuals of landscapes to t- the timeline of the place and significant historic events. And that's presented in what Nelson Bird Woltz calls a passport. And they create passports for many of their projects as part of uh, community outreach. And these passports are presented as a ways to um, talk about multiple aspects of the site. In this case, they talk about the history of the site. They're talking about the hydrology of the site, the ecological restoration strategies that they're considering for the site in the interrelationship of cultural and natural history on that site, all as factors that are helping them think about the way that the design needs to occur. And they also present all those factors to get feedback from the stakeholders involved in that. 
These are great because they're printed out on a piece of paper, folded up like a passport, and they're takeaways for everybody who um, comes to the meetings. So it allows people to reflect on information presented after those meetings. And again, I think a, a rigorous uh, combination of photography and in-depth site information made available to the folks who are interested in this project. So that's one example. The, uh, the Arango Station, these photographs are presented as part of um, their discussion about uh, some really significant decisions they made about the restoration for the site in New Zealand. And some of the key um, narratives are around different species and the interrelationship of different species on the site. So these photographs taken individually might be like, oh, well, that's interesting bird or iguana. But the point here with this is that these photographs are always used as a larger story that's told uh, by Thomas and his colleagues when they talk about this project. And so this particular example shows how important it is to relate narrative and history unseen in photographs to help us better understand and relate to specific, in this case, species for a site and get us to care about um, why it's important to do the specific restoration strategies that they engaged in. Um, and then Duke Pond, the last one is great, is really showing how seasonality, which we talked about earlier, how important it is to show seasonality in a project and show how specific features really change over time. Oh, yeah, because you have growth of the project. And um, and I was kind of thinking, you know, when you talk about that, too, is, you know, photographing uh, the user's kind of experience walking through um, a project would be mm-hmm. useful, too. Yeah, and that is um, something that the the... I talk about um, as a previous method that I utilized, which is the the user's view photography, which gets into how you can create a method um, and a set of rules that are a way that would represent what a user would experience on site um, if they were to make photographs themselves. Uh, that user's view I developed uh, as one of the around one of the first research questions for this, um, and that user's view photographs during regular times of visitation. It photographs with a 55 millimeter lens. Uh, it photographs at multiple different times of year, um, and that process the, the the photographs can only be made from places that visitors would easily access and spend time in. And so that user's view presents one view. Um, it's different than aerial oblique photographs made, you know, at sunrise or sunset. Um, and it's different um, than photographing from positions on the site that uh, are not easily accessed. Um, and so that presents one kind of narrative. Um, and I think then in that case, to be clear about that, this particular method produces this, these kinds of photographs that tell you these kinds of things. Um, I think another uh, example in the book case study um, that gets at uh, some of those ideas is Snowheda's Times Square reconstruction. So Snowheda did uh, a wonderful job of 
dealing with what was very difficult circulation issues in Times Square in New York City. And anybody who's visited there before that project was put into place knows how difficult it was to get around Times Square. Um, the photographs presented in the book are by Michael Grimm, who's a professional photographer that photographs for landscape architects and architects. And this uh, work on first blush is a before-after set of photographs. But the before photographs here made by um, folks at Snowheda when talking with Michelle Delk about this project they really focused on, we need to make photographs that capture how people are attempting to use this place and all the awkward ways that they're trying to use it. All these photographs are made as if I'm walking or you're walking around and noticing people sitting on curbs and trying to eat their lunch on a newspaper box um, and kind of crowding around certain features that were not really designed in that place beforehand. By making those types of photographs, Snohetta was really able to understand how people wanted to use the place. And so we see Michael Grimm's photographs on the other page, and he uses the same kind of tight framing to show people at a scale where they're relatable. You can see their faces, you can see them as individuals, and perhaps even engage in their what they might be thinking about. Um, and these photographs show the people using the features that Snowheda created to make a much more enjoyable space here at Times Square. So Michael Grimm's is an excellent photographer in terms of how he understands light and how he understands how to observe a place over time before making a set of photographs. But these photographs are also relatable in that as I look at them, I can imagine standing there and almost making that photograph myself. Uh, and so these photographs are a great example of uh, not giving us a big overview, but really showing the specific features that are really working in the place. Oh, that's so interesting. And, and kind of like being there kind of reminded me of, you know, you, you do kind of go in that zone when you start to photograph a place. And I know that people sometimes like to follow me or talk to me, but you really, you can't, you have to go from verbal to visual. You have to just go into that, you know, right brain imagery zone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and, yeah. And that's, you know, that's something that I uh, consider and think about is that photography still, you have to maintain a kind of focus. Um, and so the methods that I present in the chapter seven here each of those, though simple, is a way to start to cultivate focus in photographing and get into that attention that occurs when you're really looking. Um, so, you know, I, it can be hard sometimes to um, do this kind of photographic site work where you're trying to do multiple things at once or you're with multiple people. Um, I think some people can be successful at doing that, but I think that there's an awareness that your attention in certain ways has to shift um, as you're making photographs using the five second rule, asking yourself the questions about why am I making this photograph? Um, there's, it's a different kind of focus. Well, I, I want to call attention to another case study here. It's the Claude Cormier and Associates mm -hmm. and that they're whimsical, fun, 
uh, Berksy Park. Uh, I've seen photographs of it before too. And uh, uh, why did you include that in the book? And, and how does he use photography? Because this is totally different. Yeah. So this is a great example of use of photo collage to get at concepts behind a design. And um, anybody who's familiar with Claude Grimier's work is knows that he is all has a sense of humor in his work. Um, and that is what's so I think joyful about his practice. And so when he explains concepts to clients, he often utilizes some form of photo collage, a very obvious photo collage to discuss those concepts. So in this case, um, the fountain, the, the end uh, manifestation of the fountain that's at the center of this park is that there are a set of dog sculptures and that the water for the fountain comes out of the mouths of several of the dogs um, and that there's other features of the fountain that are attached to um, dogs. Uh, and I'm a dog lover. You'll find that out when you read the book as well. Uh, and, um, the, what's great about these photo collages is one of the concepts is that the fountain, which is a tiered fountain is like a tiered tray of dogs. And so one of the concept photo collages they created was that there's a silver tiered tray and there's dogs photoshopped on, um, sitting there. And it's very obviously a construction. Um, and that that construction is the center of this concept. It's supposed to make you laugh. It's supposed to be enjoyable. It's supposed to be fun. But it also, this tiered fountain also is related to uh, the cultural landscape history of these tiered fountains occurring in uh, Toronto. Uh, another photo collage has dog faces. There's a bone collaged in. There's a spiked dog collar collaged in, and then there are um, um, horse chestnut leaves in the background, which is a significant tree uh, in the cultural landscape history of Toronto. And so all those things are mashed together to say, hey, this is the concept. This is what we're doing. So it doesn't always have to be, quote unquote, real <laughs> to get the message across. Uh, but you can't forget, there's one cat there, too. Oh, yes. And there's one cat. <laughs> um, and that cat is, of course, uh, an interest peeker. <clears throat> and that relates to another project that they engaged in um, also within Toronto. So, basically, what was your, one of your, uh, other than what we've already discussed, what's another one of your favorite case studies in the book and why? Oh, gosh. Okay. That's so, it's so hard because <clears throat> I think the, um, each of them gets at something a little different. So excuse me while I flip through here. Um, cause I have, you know, the, making the case studies was such a wonderful process for the book because I got to know so many people and talk with so many people on several different instances, um, through the collection of the images, discussing what projects to talk about. And so for me, um, there was much more engagement than what could ever come through in um, showing the case studies. Uh, but I think I'm going to talk about one that people are probably going to be surprised is in here. 
or maybe um, think about, well, that's those, those aren't like good looking photographs, um, is I'm going to talk about actually two from Alta Planning and Design. Um, and I wanted to show these two projects uh, as practices uh, that, that gets at how photography is used as a, as a process. So the first one is in-process work for CV Link. And what Alta Planning and Design does is they go out into the field at a, a benchmark point in the design process with in-draft uh, basic construction layouts. They go out into the landscape, in this case in um, the Coachella Valley in California. They lay the drawings out and photograph those drawings in place. And they use that as a way to check if they're if they have the scale right, if they're thinking about things, they use the, that process as a, like a pre-visualization. And as designers, again, we, we have the ability to look at these and then project what's happening in the drawing onto that landscape. And it also helps the folks back home. So up in Portland at the home office, uh, get a better sense of some of the specific details of the landscape at a midpoint in the project, not just at the beginning. So it's a way to recheck themselves. And so I think that's a really interesting process. What's also important to me about showing this work is I really wanted to show work that we wouldn't see displayed on the websites. Um, that's kind of the back of the house process stuff. But because this book is about using photography for design process, I, it's important to show <laughs> show these things that people are like, well, you want us to show you want to show that? I'm like, yes, I do. So the other one is Alta Planning does this really interesting process of setting the point of beginning for projects. And they do something really simple. They photograph in place and then they use an object like a pencil or a finger to point at in the photograph what they're designating as the POB. Because of course we, we often just have to make the POB when we're designing. And then they have a set of methodical photographs they make to map, to visually map out the location of the POB with other photographs and other um, occurrences on the site that might already be uh, appear in different um, AutoCAD documents. So that's, again, really interesting. People might go, why is that in there to begin with? Those aren't like beautiful photographs, but it's really about the process and how photography is utilized as a tool um, for that particular process. Oh, that sounds like the perfect note to end on. Great. Good. <laughs> uh, well, and, you know, thank you so much for being here. It's, it's given me a, a new perspective on going out and and uh, trying to photograph a landscape in a different way than just trying to be, you know, artsy or artistic about it. So um, thank you for being here today and taking the time uh, to do this interview. Can you tell our audience, so what interesting, what interesting things are you working on now? Right. So um, this book, Active Landscape Photography, Theoretical Groundwork for Landscape Architecture is now the first book in a series of three books that I am doing with Routledge Press. The second book is going to continue with the theme, Active Landscape Photography. 
and it is going to present a set of critical methods for daily practice. And the third book is about diverse practices, and it is a collection of contributors, both in academia and the practice and photographers, um, talking about very specific methods and practices they're utilizing for very specific projects in landscape architecture. I'm really excited about that. And actually, I just sent out emails about that this afternoon before our interview. So I've got a full plate um, right now, and um, I'm hoping to go out and do some more of my own photographing this summer. Oh, that sounds great. And I always, you know, let my guests know that, you know, I'm still here. You have to send me your next book. Okay, you got it. (laughs) Uh, Well, again, Anne, thank you so much for being here today. And I want to let the audience know that the book is Active Landscape Photography by Anne Godfrey, published by Routledge in 2020. And I'm Trisha Keffer in the sunny, bright Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture with a special mini-series in Landscape Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, just please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. <laughs>